Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. If you were here last week, you know that I talked about how um, this series, the idea for this series was um, that we needed to talk about how do you love someone who's lost their way and they're off track and making some bad decisions. And sort of the desperado thing came from the fact that uh, as we've been conversing about maybe this, this series and how it might take shape, I was listening to the Eagles as I was driving down the road in my car, and I heard that iconic song, Desperado, and I started thinking about those lyrics, and I thought, well, this is really perfect for what we're going to be talking about. Last week, um, we had a message called, Why Don't You Come to Your Senses? Uh, this week, it's called These Things That Are Pleasing You, and originally the title of this message was These Things That Are Pleasing You Will Hurt You Somehow, but that was a little long. Um, but the reason for the title is it is part of the song that is a persuasive argument. It is, hey, wake up, realize these things that you're doing, they're not going to end well. And this whole talk is about to what extent should we be making an argument? To what extent should we be trying to convince somebody that they need to make a turnaround, right? Um, and we're, we're going to get into that. But before we do that, I'm always aware that, you know, you may have been out of town last week. A lot, a lot, of, a lot of us have things going on. So um, I do want to play a little bit of catch up. And to start with that, I just want to kind of define the term desperado. What do we mean when we say a desperado in the series? We mean a person that stubbornly chooses a path that hurts themselves and others. Last week, we said this word stubborn is very important. Um, because in the book of Proverbs, uh, there's a differentiation between two very important groups of people. One group of people, uh, the book of Proverbs calls wise people, and then the other group, the book of Proverbs calls foolish people. But what's really interesting is you might think that the differentiating factor between wise people and foolish people is whether they do stupid things. But the interesting thing is we all do stupid things. So the difference between a wise person and a foolish person isn't whether or not they do something stupid. The difference is that a wise person can be instructed. A wise person can be confronted. They have the capacity to be confronted. The scripture talks about being able to be rebuked. It is possible if you're a wise person for somebody to stand up to you and say, this is not okay, and you will actually listen to them. And you will learn in turn. You will actually pay attention. You will digest that. You will process it. And you will make adjustments to how you live your life based off of that feedback. What is different about a foolish person is that they cannot be instructed. They cannot be confronted. You've probably seen this before. If you confront a foolish person, a lot of times they will rage out. It's like I hit the rage button when I, any kind of confrontation, any suggestion that you might be doing something that's probably harmful or not good, suddenly they'd blow a gasket. Either that, or maybe if they're more of an introvert, they may just go off the radar. Like you may just not hear from them. You may have a hard time connecting with them because they just go, you know, sub, uh, sub radar where you don't connect with them anymore because they're like, if I talk to them, they're going to bring up this thing that I'm working really, really hard to ignore. Stubbornness. This is very, very important. This is what makes a desperado because elsewise, again, this is so important. If I'm a wise person, I'm still going to make mistakes. Yes, I'm still going to struggle, but at least there is a humility within my spirit that says, tell me what I'm doing wrong so I can learn from it. A desperado, you will never hear that from. Last week, we said that if you deal with a desperado, if you have somebody in your life who's making bad choices, especially somebody whom you're close to, somebody whom you're invested in, someone that really matters to you, you're going to be asking all kinds of difficult questions because bad behavior breeds difficult relationship situations and big questions that we have to answer. And one of those questions that I mentioned to you last week, and we didn't camp out on it last week, but we will this week, is the question, should I try to pressure them to change? Because we all know we have a certain amount of influence, and we know that we can use that influence to exert pressure on someone. And I think there's a question, how much pressure is right? Like, and, and, and so much of this series boils down to that balance between boundaries and love, and so often it's really hard to figure out where, where do you strike that balance? How much pressure is right? And one of the things that's really clear if you hop on social media is that in our culture, we're a little wrong about this. We tend to use a little too much pressure, okay, a lot too much pressure 
on people. To, and, and honestly, and I'm not being even a little bit sarcastic when I say this, so please hear me frame it that way. No sarcasm here. There are some of us in the room who have the impression that God has commissioned us to set other people straight. <laughs> that God has said, as a Christian, your job is to straighten people out. So if they say things that you believe are wrong socially, politically, religiously, any of those sorts of things, it is, it is as though there's almost an anxiety that I will be letting God down if I don't help this person understand exactly where they're wrong and how they should be thinking. They should be thinking like me. How much pressure is right? Well, in order to answer that question, we're doing what we, we're going to do this entire series. We're going to the story in the scripture called the story of the prodigal son. It has a few different names, but usually it'll be called the story of the prodigal son. It's in Luke chapter 15. So if you like to read along, you like to open your Bible or follow on the app or whatever, Luke chapter 15 is where we're going to spend a majority of our time. If you were here with us last week, you heard how that Jesus was teaching and he's telling a story. And often Jesus did teach through stories. In the story, there are three main characters. There's a father and there's two sons, an older son and a younger son. The father represents God, the older son represents church people, religious people, and then the third person represents you and me, sinners that need to come to Christ, right? And so he's telling this story, and the way that it goes is the younger son comes to the father and says, I want my inheritance. I'm quite disappointed that you have not yet died. I've been waiting you are looking a little haggard. At least I got that going for me, but I'm, I'm tired. You're just not, I, I need my money now. And I told you last week that if I'm the father, when the son says to me, I want my money, my answer is no. I'm not giving you that money because of how irresponsible you are. If I give you the money, you're gonna go off and do really stupid things with it. You're gonna squander it. And then you're not gonna have any money and that's gonna cause you all kinds of issues down the road in your life. No way, I'm not giving you your money. But interestingly enough, the father in the story who represents God writes the check. And then remember, we, we said that the, the, the story says that the younger son goes to a quote unquote far off land and squanders his money on wild living and if I'm the father and the son is getting ready to leave home, right, and I know this is what's going to happen, I will not let him leave. I will find some way to keep him from leaving the house because I know what kind of irresponsibility is in his spirit and I know what kind of detrimental, self-destructive and other destructive sorts of things that he'll do if he gets loose. But once again, we know that the father allows him to leave. And that's kind of where we pick up the story. So he wasted his money while living, we know that. And about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. And he persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. Again, last week we said, this was really so he could be the butt of a joke. He, he took this job so that this guy could say, check out the Jewish boy that I have feeding my pigs. And the thing about it is, and we talked about this last week, if you're a desperado and you're on the wrong path and you stubbornly choose to stay on the wrong path, eventually it will not only take away your resources, it will take away your dignity. So here he is feeding the pigs. And it says he became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. Now this could have happened for one of two reasons. I didn't talk about this last week, but this could have happened for one of two reasons. Could be that he was working for such an abusive boss that the pay that he was getting was not enough to buy food at a time when food was at a premium. That's possible. But I gotta tell you, my gut says that's not it. My gut says, here is a guy who squanders money, that is his problem, and I tend to think that whatever he was getting paid, he blew that money and didn't have enough to eat because of his lack of maturity and his lack of ability to handle finances. And I don't know who this is for, but there are those moments where even at a point where you're like, surely, at this point, they will realize that what they're doing is destructive and they will quit doing it. it so difficult to watch that even as life is teaching them that lesson, they still make the same mistake that they were making before they hit rock bottom. But somehow at this point, he comes to his senses and he says to himself at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home. And as we talked about last week, he does. Parents in the room, especially parents of older children. I want you to think through this story with me and just think for a moment about what is missing. What is the missing component of this story? Here's my question when I read it. Why doesn't the father try to convince the son to come home? That's what I wanna know. If I'm the father, and forgive the, uh, the anachronism, if, if I'm the father, I'm driving to the far off land and I am pleading with my son, please, 
please pay attention to what you're doing. Look at how it is harming our family. Look at how it's harming yourself. Look at what you're doing to your inheritance. Think, take the long look, son. Think about what this is going to do long term to you. I mean, don't, don't you care about people? Don't you care about your future? Don't you care about what you're doing? And I would have been making that case. And then if he wouldn't listen to me and wouldn't come home, I would call every day on the phone and I would say the same things again. And here's the scary part. There is a part of me that even if he never came home, I would at least feel like I had done my job. Because at least over and over again, I'll be able to tell myself over and over again, I told him and he never would listen. At least I pressured him to change and it, it didn't, didn't work. Let's talk about this for a minute because can we just agree up front that there's nothing wrong with trying to persuade someone to do the right thing? That's a biblical principle. You go back to Matthew 18 where it says, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out their offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. Back to what? Back to a healthy relationship. You were in a healthy relationship. There was a little bit of a problem. You talked to that person, they listened, and we're back now to a healthy dynamic. This is actually a model for communication in a healthy relationship. It's one of the reasons why I use Matthew 18 a lot in my work with couples, right? But it doesn't quite always go this way. If you're in a relationship with a desperado, you're not gonna have this experience if you talk to them about the offense. So, but, but quickly, let, let me go back to what I was trying to say a second ago. In a healthy relationship, if we use the model that we just saw, there are a few things that happen in communication and you can observe them directly. The first thing is we're honest with each other about our behavior, right? There has to be an ability to be honest with each other about what's happening in the relationship, the positives and the negatives. I've worked with a lot of distressed married couples over the years and they will say things to me like, we walk on eggshells in this relationship. Uh, and what they mean by saying we walk on eggshells is we can't be honest with each other about our behavior because if we were, it would blow things up. You, in any relationship, but especially in a marriage relationship, each person must man their own complaint desk. In, in, in Wendy and my relationship, there needs to be a Jonathan complaint desk and there needs to be a Wendy complaint desk. And I need to be able, when Wendy comes over to my complaint desk and needs to tell me that something that I'm doing is, is problematic for her, I need to be able to have the maturity to stay put at my complaint desk and hear that and listen to it and digest it and think about how I wanna to respond to that. But do you know what most of us do? For most of us, when somebody comes to our complaint desk, we leave our complaint desk and go over to their complaint desk and start registering complaints in turn. And then what happens is you have two people complaining and nobody listening. Now, I'm not talking about criticizing. Let's be clear, criticism is a whole, thing, whole different thing. A criticism says that you're defective somehow. You're an idiot, you're a drama queen, you're a jerk, you're always late, you never take out the trash, you're never on time to anything, right? Those are criticisms. A complaint says, I don't like it when this happens. Or when, this, when you said this, it bothered me, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to diagnose the other person. I just need to be able to say that, that, that this is not okay. And in a healthy relationship, there is honesty about our behavior and we can have those conversations. And then secondly, we listen to the uncomfortable truth. I mean, seriously, if you wanna come tell me how great a guy I am, I'm open to that. Anytime my door is open, call the church, make an, make an appointment, come on in. It's harder for me when somebody needs to tell me that I've messed up. It's harder for me to hear somebody say, Jonathan, this is an area of your character that may need some development. Jonathan, this is something that I've noticed that is a problem in our relationship. That is hard, it is uncomfortable. But being a wise person, like we talked about earlier, remember what I said, a wise person can be, an, can be instructed, a wise person can be confronted. It means that I have the capacity to accept, to absorb the uncomfortable truth. Our culture has taught us that strength is how much you can resist. Actually, strength has to do with how much you can absorb. How much, can I, how much can I absorb in terms of taking in truth that may at the moment be uncomfortable? And then finally, we take responsibility when we're wrong. When we do something wrong, we're willing to own up to it. That actually is the key earmark of a safe person. A safe person will take responsibility when they do wrong, but an unsafe person will never do that. And the reason it makes them unsafe is that if they won't take responsibility for it now, it nearly guarantees that they will do it again. But that healthy communication dynamic, that's not gonna happen with a desperado. If you're dealing with a desperado, what you're gonna notice is first of all, they're not even honest with themselves. Forget the question of being honest with you. 
I've talked to a lot of people in my years of counseling that it was clear to me that they weren't being honest with me, but what was scary is that it was clear that they had lost track of what was true. They had lied to themselves for so long, they're not really sure about what is true and what's not true. And that is a scary place to be. The Bible says, woe to people who say that good is evil and evil is good. And what he's saying, what the Bible is saying is there is a point at which we can confuse our own self and not even be honest with ourselves. The second thing is they will not listen because they can't absorb the uncomfortable truth. And so what they will do, rather than, you know, what I wanna be about when it comes to uncomfortable truth, I wanna be the catcher who catches the ball, but there are people instead who are the batter, who as soon as the uncomfortable truth comes at them, they hit it back so that it will go back in somebody else's direction. They won't listen to you. And then they'll shift blame, which is what I'm talking about. I bat it back at you, it is your fault somehow. The one thing that is an earmark of a desperado is that it's always someone else's fault, always. And the thing about it is, if we have a mature view, we understand that responsibility tends to be a shared thing, right? So, especially in marriage, I'm partially responsible for this, Wendy may be partially responsible for this, and in a healthy viewpoint, we recognize that we all share responsibility, we have to kind of figure out what our part is in something. But a desperado is going for broke. I'm not responsible for this at all. If you wanna know whose fault it is, it's their fault and their fault and this situation, this thing that happened to me and this, you know, it's always something else. Ephesians 4 says that this kind of person is full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they've done two things. They've closed their mind and they've hardened their hearts against him. What does it mean to have a hard heart? Because that is the theme in scripture. Often the Bible talks about a person who is really, really off the rails as having a hard heart. What are we talking about? And, and this is no slam on those of you who love football. I'm not trying to criticize football. But when I think about a hard heart, I think about a football uniform. We, we put a hard hat, do, do we not, on people who play football. Why? Because we know they're going to have to run through obstacles. The goal is for them to get past those obstacles. But if we don't put a helmet on, they're going to hurt themselves really bad. They're going to be very vulnerable to those obstacles. Can I tell you that one of the most powerful things about living a Christian life is if we can be vulnerable to the obstacles that God puts in our way when we're going down a wrong path, and he will do it. The Bible says that God chastens who he loves. What, what is chastening? Chastening is the strategic placement of obstacles in our way when we are choosing to go down the wrong path. And God does that not, not in order to make our life hard, but to help us realize that we're making mistakes. A hard heart says, I have allowed myself to become so hard that I can run through the obstacles that God puts in my way and I'm pretty much to the point where I don't even notice it anymore. This is what Proverbs is talking about when it says the wise are cautious and avoid danger, but fools plunge ahead with reckless confidence. You see what I'm saying? There's this plunging ahead through those obstacles that God has put in my life intentionally. Consequences. People that are standing up and saying, why are you doing this? It doesn't make any sense. This is inconsistent with your character. Why are you going down this road? To a person who is sensitive, we will hear those things and we'll go, whoa, maybe this is a point where I need to exercise some caution. But a person who is a desperado will just push right through that line of defense happened with Pharaoh and Moses. You remember, Moses is under God's leadership trying to extricate the people of Israel out of Egypt, and they're dealing with Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's an interesting dude. He has all these plagues, still doesn't let the people go. You got the frogs and the locusts. That would freak me out. I'd be like, get out of here. Like, take our horses, whatever, just go, you know? But Pharaoh continually kind of waffled back and forth and was keeping them from going. And I want you to see this verse. This is in Exodus 7. Pharaoh's heart, however, remained hard. He still refused to listen just as the Lord had predicted. I think one of the things that was happening is God was teaching Moses about stubborn people through Pharaoh. And the reason is because Moses is going to spend about 40 years of his life with some really stubborn people. And I think God wanted him to know what that was going to be like. And what, what God is saying is, I predict if you're dealing with somebody with a hard heart, they will not listen to you. Not only will they not listen to you, they will intentionally not listen to you. They will refuse to listen to you. So if you feel like you're doing something wrong, because as you try to persuade somebody, they are literally intentionally refusing to listen to you. Can I tell you? That's the way that it goes. A person with a hard heart isn't going to listen to you. By the way, not only does having a hard heart end conversations, and it does, it also ends relationships sometimes. Chapter 19 of Matthew has freaked people out for a long time on the, on the uh, concept of divorce. And different denominations over the years have really misinterpreted what Jesus was trying to say in Matthew 19. And one of the reasons is they take it way out of context. But if you wanna see what Jesus says about the cause for divorce, 
you need to go to a verse that people tend to just read straight past. And that is Matthew 19, 8. Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession for what? To your hard hearts. If you want to know what Jesus is saying, the cause for divorce is, it's a hard heart. It's a person who's made a decision. They're, they're being destructive. They recognize that it's hurting themselves and others, but they've basically made a determination that they're not going to turn around. They're not going to learn and turn. They're going to keep going down this road, you know, and everybody else around them is going to have to pay the price for that. And Jesus is saying, not only can it be a conversation ender, they won't listen to you, but there, there comes a time when a person is being stubborn enough and choosing a destructive path that you may not be able to continue to walk down that road with them anymore. Not because that's what God intended, but because a hard heart can cause that much damage. What does a hard heart look like? I have a colleague who studies something called IPV, intimate partner violence, violence between people in an intimate relationship. And uh, she told me the other day about this acronym, DARVO. I'd never heard about it before, but when she explained it to me, I said, oh, this is, how many times have I seen this? This is what DARVO stands for. Denial, attack, reverse the victim and the offender. And these are the three things that we know happen when you confront a person about being violent towards their intimate partner. The first thing is you'll get denial. It's not, it didn't happen that way. I didn't do that. That's not what it is. And there will be this sort of like saying, no, you're wrong about that. But if the evidence is overwhelming and they can't get out from underneath the evidence, the next thing that they will do, because if the evidence begins to pile on and they realize that I cannot deny this anymore, they have this feeling of powerlessness. So they will up the ante and try to take a powerful position and they will get angry and they will come after you. And they will get angry with you. And then if that doesn't work, eventually they will reverse the victim and the offender. And somehow the person who was harmed will sudden, suddenly be painted out as the person who caused all of this. And I've seen this over and over again, where a couple has come in my office and somehow the perpetrator has, does everything that they can to somehow work the math so that eventually the person that they hurt becomes the person that is responsible for everything. By the way, if you want to see Darvo in action, you can go back to the original case of domestic violence in the Bible. That would be in Genesis 4, where Cain kills his brother Abel. The Lord asks Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel? Check this out. I don't know. That would be denial. Am I my brother's guardian? That would be attack. Listen, when you start smarting off the God, I mean, that's what my parents used to call it, smarting off. When you start smarting off to God, that is trying to raise your chair up six inches and talk down to God. That is the attack part of this. And then finally, and the Lord says, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. You're going to be cursed now. You're no longer will the ground yield good crops for you, no matter how hard you work. And then check out what Cain says. My punishment is too great for me to bear. This is reversing the victim and the offender. God, look at what you're doing to me. Do you feel good about yourself, God? Now that you've done this to me, do you feel good about yourself? Look at this. He says, you have banished me from the land and from your presence. You have made me a homeless wanderer. Anyone who finds me will kill me. And by the way, this is something I would add to DARVO. It won't fit with the acronym, but I've seen it so many times that I know that it fits. If none of that works, that person will try to create an anxiety in you that by handling it properly, you will have created a new problem. And that's exactly what Cain is saying because God has handled this properly, but he's saying, look at what the outcome of this terrible thing that you're doing to me will be. I'm talking to somebody here and you have a family member who's saying, well, I hope you appreciate that you ruined Thanksgiving for us. You, you, you're saying that you're gonna have to, you know, put some distance in our relationship because of your boundaries and because of the things you say that I've done. But think about what Thanksgiving is gonna be like for grandma when you don't show up at the house. Boundaries are hard. By the way, there are some of us who have the sort of sappy idea that has sort of floated through Christianity that if you are a Christian and you love God, then you won't have boundaries because we have the impression that God doesn't have boundaries. Can I assure you, God has boundaries. This is something our culture has totally lost track of because we try to redefine God. But God tells us he is not up for redefinition, that there is no lack of clarity. God is very clear on his boundaries, right? Do you remember what the Bible says? The Bible says that if we draw near to God, what will happen? 
God will draw near to us. What is the inverse of that, friends? If I pull away from God, then God is gonna, there's gonna be distance between me and God. That is one of God's boundaries. God's boundaries, one of God's boundaries is the intimacy in my relationship with God has to do with my behavior, whether I draw close or pull away from God. And that is true in human relationships as well. Intimacy has to hinge on whether or not I'm in a relationship with a safe person. Moving toward or moving away from, that matters. That matters. That's why I'm saying it's so important that we go to Ephesians 4 and see this bit about the, the desperado having a hardened heart against God because it explains so much. My original question is, why doesn't the father try to convince the son to come home? And I think the answer is because a hard heart is not prepared to listen. I think the father understands if I try to make this case, it's just gonna be so many words going into the air. Nobody's gonna be listening and it's actually going to ricochet and backfire and not be what I'm looking for. Social media has taught us so much psychology wise on this topic because there are so many groups in social media that are pro this or anti this. They're, they're based on a political or a social issue. And so researchers have gone in to see what happens when I post evidence that is against this group's beliefs. And here's what we've learned. We've learned that actually by posting that evidence, we drive them further into their initial belief. We make them mad and we prove to them that they were right in the first place. And I think the father understands the last thing I can afford to do is push him farther into what he's already doing. Here's what you'll notice. That Darvo thing, how does it play out in real life? A couple things you'll notice. The first thing you'll notice from them is justification. Now, what justification is, is it's a way of saying, I understand that what I'm doing is technically wrong, but let me explain to you why it's reasonable, right? So it's, it's the idea that I, I get that it, in any other situation, it would be wrong, but let me tell you why it's not wrong for me. Let me tell you why my circumstance overrides that. Let me tell you why what I've been through proves that it's, not a big, it's, it's, it's no big deal. So it's wrong, but it's okay. Here's why. That's justification. The second thing that you'll see from them is, is argument boosting. And what argument boosting is, I go find some evidence that says that my argument is right. And if you were in this room and you have any experience in forensic debate, you understand that you can find evidence for just about any argument. You sit there and your instructor assigns you to the affirmative or the negative, and you're gonna to have to go find evidence, and somehow the debate system has worked for years with two people being assigned to go find evidence for both points of view. Why? Because evidence can be found that depending on how you interpret it, will support whatever view you wanna find. So this is something, especially for extroverted desperados, they will go find the evidence and pile it on you as a way of, it's almost like when you're in a legal battle with somebody who piles you up in red tape just to keep you occupied so that what you're trying to do can't happen, that's exactly what we're talking about. I'll bring you evidence that almost becomes red tape that you have to sort through to where hopefully eventually you'll just get tired and leave me alone. And then blame throwing, it's her fault, it's his fault, it's their fault, it's, I went through this and I lost my job and this and that. And, all those things may be very difficult and they may play a role in a person's life difficulty, but there is not, there are, there's not a person in this room who's able to say, I don't play any, I have no responsibility in this situation in my life. We all have some responsibility to take. Button pushing? Button pushing is when they know that if I push this button with you, I will trigger you to act out of character and by triggering you to act out of character, I will then make you feel bad about yourself and you will now be in your own personal quandary and I can walk away and feel better about myself. So I will make you angry, I'll make you upset, I'll do whatever it is, whatever it takes to push your button so that I can get you alarmed and then I won't have to deal with this anymore. And then the victim escape. I use the word escape here in the sense that we use it in wrestling, right? When, you, when a person gets pinned in wrestling, uh, they're looking to see, will that person be able to escape? And here I'm not talking about that a person talking to a desperado is pinning them. I'm talking about when the truth begins to pin them because the truth is a very powerful influence. It's very difficult uh, to get around the truth. And sometimes if you've ever been caught in a lie, you know this happens that as more and more truth starts to hit the, the situation that you're in, it starts to feel like the walls are closing in on you. The truth is a heavy thing. And so what will happen is, once a person starts to feel like I'm being confronted with something I can neither argue with um, and I cannot get the person that I'm talking to sidetracked about it, what they will do is they'll do the victim escape. Well, I guess you're perfect then, aren't you? I guess I'm just the mess up and you're always the perfect one and you're always the one that never makes any mistakes and I'm always the, and that is why I can't be around you because you do everything right and I do everything wrong. It's the victim escape. Somehow now 
This is about you being, once again, this is reversing the, the victim and the offender. It's all about you, isn't it? You did this to me. It's not just them, though. There are some things that we do that are not helpful either. There are some things that we do to try to juice up our arguments that, that really backfire on us. One is repetition. We have the impression that the more we repeat something, the more powerful it becomes when actually the opposite is true. Ladies in the room who have small children, let me ask you, what is your experience like when your four or five-year-old goes, mom, 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 mom? I know what the rest of our experience is like, answer that kid. But you know what? That mom has actually learned to tune it out. The rest of us are very aware, but that mom has learned to tune it out. Why? Because we tune out repetitive things. When we hear something over and over again, we turn the volume knob down and we no longer hear it. So if you want to have a voice in a person's life, you need to be cautious about repeating yourself too much because they will just log it away as speech number four. And I've heard speech number four about five million times and they'll turn the volume knob down. The second thing is intensity. Some of us don't use repetition, we use intensity. So our tone of voice, our facial expression, the words that we choose, the way that we come across is very intense. But that has its own problem. And the biggest problem with that is that intensity happens on a pendulum. So we get really intense and we're over here and we're just going at it. I'm going to tell them what they need to do and tell them how upset I am. Maybe I'm tearful and I'm really emotional and upset. But the thing about pendulums is eventually they swing in the other direction. And so what tends to happen with a person who uses intensity for their arguments is one moment they're incredibly intense, uncomfortably intense. And then later that day, it's as though nothing is wrong in the entire relationship. Everything is perfectly fine. And the person that you're dealing with, they're confused because they don't know whether to duck or pucker when they see you coming. Third thing is logic traps. We think that by setting up the logical arguments, a person will have to come to the same conclusion that we've come to. Surely they will. Prosecuting attorneys are instructed never to ask a question to which they do not know the answer. And you ask those questions in such a way as to build a structure so that by the time that you're done asking questions, it leads that witness to the point where they must end where you want them to end. And a lot of us think that the real world works that way and that we can set up the logical arguments such that they will eventually come to the same conclusion that we've come to. We've really gotten convinced that arguing is the right way to fix, figure this out. All you have to do is check out social media. You'll see what I'm talking about. <clears throat> I know otherwise healthy, sane, smart individuals who get so involved in writing things in threads on social media that if you were to print out the thread on social media, it would take pages and pages of printer paper. And it's a political thing or it's a social thing. And they get so involved in this argument that one of the, one of the things that social media has done to harm our society is that social media has convinced us that we're all writers and most of us aren't. And so there's all this argument going on, but it's really not making much of, a, much of a difference. And you look at that and you think, what must this person be thinking? I mean, do we think that someone is going to come knock on our door? Knock, knock, knock. I open the door and they say, man, what you posted on social media, I was so wrong. And you are so right. I changed my political affiliation. I join the church. I take my kids to the park every day. And those little quotes and little sayings that you post on your account. But we act as though we think that's going to happen. It doesn't work that way. Logic traps don't work. And then guilt trips certainly don't work. We have the idea sometimes, I think, that if someone would feel bad enough about what they're doing, that would motivate them to change. Did you know that just flat out does not work? Guilt is not a motivator. We'll talk about that in just a second. So what are some alternatives to these things we just talked about? Well, the first thing is be on the record, but please don't be a broken record. See, the thing is, being on record is important. I don't want somebody to come to me later on in my life and say, Jonathan, you saw where I was going. You saw the direction I was headed in. You saw me making these mistakes and you never said anything to me about it. It's important to be on record, but it's also important not to be a broken record. 
I need them to know where I stand on it, but I don't need to repeat it so much that they eventually just learn to tune me out. The second thing is consistency is better than intensity. Jesus came to us, the scripture says, full of grace and truth, full of grace and truth. What that means is that for for Jesus, his pendulum was always in the middle. The problem with a pendulum is that when we're upset and intense, we're all the way into truth and there is no grace. Then the pendulum swings the other way and it's all grace and no truth. But if we live a Christ-like life, we need to center ourselves where God has called us, his adopted children, to be following his example and being consistent that they consistently know where we stand that they can trust that that's where we are. Also understand that there's no such thing as a logic transplant. Until the doctors figure out how to do it, I cannot take the logic from my brain and put it in your brain and have you think the same way that I think. So I need to understand that stacking up the dominoes so that you will come to the same conclusion that I've come to, it's a waste of time. Because you're not gonna think about it the way that I think about it. And remember that guilt is never the goal. Did you know that the Bible does not talk about guilt in the sense that we use it? in our society. When the Bible talks about guilt, it's talking about being innocent or guilty in a court of law. But we use feeling guilty as a way of talking about, I feel so bad about what I've done. Did you know that that is not a motivator in the Bible? The motivator for repentance in the Bible is what the Bible calls godly sorrow. And godly sorrow is I suddenly become sad about the impact of my behavior on me and on other people. And I'm sad enough about it that I wanna make a turnaround and I wanna go in the opposite direction. Guilt, on the other hand, only motivates us to wallow because guilt says, look at how much of a mess up I am. And that does not motivate us to make a change. We know what the father does in this story. Going back to what we said last week, the father allows the son to leave, waits for the son to come to his senses, rejoices when the son comes home. What do we learn from that? Last week we said we learned that you can't bar the door. You can't make somebody do the right thing. This week our point is that you can't talk a desperado into coming home. It would be lovely if you could, but you can't. There's no persuasive argument that you have that's gonna be perfect. I mean, I have people that have, have, they come get me on my way to or from my office and they'll say, Jonathan, I really need you to fold this into your next message, you know, because I have figured out, and this is truly, I'm, I'm not making this up, I have figured out something that if unbelievers heard this, they would absolutely become believers. This one thing, if they could hear it, like this is the linchpin. And I I always wanna go, that is awesome. Kind of surprising Jesus didn't fold it into the Sermon on the Mount, but still. um, (laughs) It's so easy to think that somewhere there's a magic formula, there's a magic combination that I'll be able to say this and it'll turn it all around. But the truth is, often that just does not work. So what can you do? That's the question we're trying to answer this whole time anyway. Having healthy boundaries, showing the love of God, what can I do that shows that balance? Well, the first thing you can do is to set an example, even if it's from a distance. Even if there is distance in the relationship, I can still set a good example. And as a matter of fact, it's not just a matter of I can set a good example, God has called me in this situation to set a good example. How does that work? Well, first of all, you need to start inside. What desperado tendencies in me need addressing? It's very hard for a person to care about our influence if what they see in us is more broken than what they recognize in themselves. Jesus addressed this, right? He said, why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite, first, get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Two things that that scripture says. One is it is a human tendency to have a double standard. It is part of the human condition that we tend to pay a lot of attention to what the brokenness that we see in other people and we tend to overlook the brokenness that is within ourselves. As a matter of fact, the more we obsess about someone else's brokenness, the more likely we are to overlook the brokenness that is within ourselves. And Jesus is saying, you need to start there. Interesting, the second point that's being made there is not that if you have an issue in your own life, you will never be able to help that other person. It's more of an order of operations thing. It's I can help the other person, but first I have to worry about what needs restoring and healing in my own life. Secondly, we need to model godly living because what we model is incredibly powerful and we know that it's far more powerful than what we say. 
social researchers checking out what kind of influence do parents have on their children, we've learned that what parents say about good behavior, what parents say about how things should be done actually doesn't carry a whole lot of weight. What parents do, on the other hand, is profoundly powerful, more than any of us would have initially estimated. The truth is our kids will learn to do what we do. And some of our kids will go to a therapist to try to unlearn what we do. <laughs> Modeling godly living. This is a message to a pastor. Care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly. Not for what you will get out of it, but because you are eager to serve God. Don't lord it over the people assigned to your care, but lead them how? By your example. Not by, it's interesting because this is to a pastor, not by your brilliant teaching, not by the amazing things you figure out how to say, but by your example. Sometimes I have guys come to my office and say, Jonathan, this thing here about the man being the head of the home and being the spiritual leader, what does that mean? Like I get to make all the big decisions? No. Being a leader means that you're the first person to do the right thing. You have to give people a path to follow. When I was uh, small, my dad would take me and my brother to go fishing on this land out in the country in Kansas, and it had lots of snakes, and I hate snakes. I know some of you probably love snakes. I'm sorry, I still think the only good snake is a dead snake. I, I don't want to be around them. And so my dad would just say, just step where I step and you'll be okay. My question for you is, the desperado in your life, would it be a good thing for you to tell them just step where I step? Because God is saying, you need to double check your example. Make sure that it's something you would want someone to follow. Number two, pray like you've never prayed before. My dad says, if you have more than one child, you'll have at least one that'll teach you how to pray. <laughs> pray like you've never prayed before. James 5.16, confess to one another, therefore, your faults, your slips, your false steps, your offenses, your sins, and pray for one another that you may be healed and restored. To what? To a spiritual tone of mind and heart. What is the Bible saying? When somebody has a hard heart, we should be praying for them, not that somehow my words will soften their heart, but somehow God will get their attention and God will help soften their heart. The truth is, the reason why you cannot talk a desperado into coming home is the job is too big for you. You don't have the right words. You don't have the capability. And if we could make peace with that, we might actually make some progress to understand that it is gonna take nothing short of the God of the universe to soften this heart. That's what's gonna have to happen. But... He says, the earnest, heartfelt, continued prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous power available. And, and the word that, that is translated power here is the Greek word from which we get the word energy. So if you think about it, and energy and motion is really the concept there, the, the best like, mental thought that we can attach that to is recharging our phone. Literally, the, God is saying it, it charges this relationship with energy when you go before the throne of God and say, God, please soften this person's heart. And then the last thing, point number three, Plan ahead for the party. What can I be doing right now? You can plan ahead for the party. Look at what happens with the father. So you have the son coming home. His father sees him and felt compassion, runs to him, embraces him, kisses him, and the son starts his speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and again before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the definite article, the fattened calf, and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Why the fattened calf. They didn't eat meat unless it was a feast or a celebration. The reason that when he told the servants the fattened calf is because the calf was there to be fattened up for the day that the son would come home and the day that they would have this party. It is important that we recognize that just because today things don't look good, that there's not a party coming. That there's, there's a day when we're gonna get to celebrate the turnaround. We do a Judgment House at New Spring. We haven't been able to do it because of the COVID virus for a little while, but in 2019, we did Judgment House. If you're not familiar with what it is, it's a walkthrough drama. People go through, there's church volunteers that play the dramatic roles, and it's a drama about heaven and hell and judgment and the gospel, and um, people go through the entire drama, and then they'll end up in my room, which is an invitation room, and I'll present the gospel to them. I tell pastors it's a dream come true to present the gospel to a new room full of people every 10 minutes, and that's what it's like. It was Sunday, and Sunday is a long day if you do Judgment House, because uh, you get done with church, and everybody kind of gets a bite to eat real quick, and then it all gets set up again, and, and Judgment House happens from early Sunday afternoon all the way through that late that evening. 
And uh, so I'm kind of settling in for a long day at Judgment House. I walk through 252, which is where everybody's getting ready to go on the tour and they're getting the tours put together. And I see this first tour and I know they're gonna end up in my invitation room. And I'm looking at them, I can see mostly it's a church group, they have church t-shirts on. Uh, I also see a couple of walk-ins that got added to the group, and they're, they're a study in contrast, really. One is a, I'm going to guess a guy in his mid-50s, um, he's wearing a suit, really had the impression, here's a guy who just got off, who just came out of church and is going to this thing. He's really just looking around, very interested in everything. The guy next to him, I'm going to say was 22 or 23, and I know that nobody uses this phrase anymore, but he was kind of like too cool for school, you know, <laughs> just kind of slumped over the chair and... Looking at his phone and just seems like I really would like to be anywhere other than here right now. And I did wonder whether or not they were related. So I go and, and I'm in the invitation room. We're getting everything ready. That group is going through the tour. Debbie Kubish says a word of prayer for this group that's coming through. And prayer is a big important part of Judgment House. Debbie Kubish is a prayer warrior, powerful, powerful prayer. And she prays for energy for us and prays that something great will happen in that group. And you, you ought never to be skeptical when someone prays, but I was kind of skeptical because everybody had church shirts on and I thought I'm gonna be talking to the already convinced. So I don't think anything necessarily great is gonna happen, but we're gonna do what we do. The group comes in, those two guys come in and because everybody's just walking in, they end up separated. Young guy ends up on the very front, the guy in his 50s on, on the back. And this young guy is very much changed in his demeanor, very changed. Now his eyes are as wide as saucers and he's sitting on the very edge of his seat and he's on the front row. He's just a few feet away from me. It's actually a little bit of an uncomfortable vibe because he is really intensely paying attention right now. And I start to tell about the gospel of Jesus Christ and he nods along as I'm, as I'm talking. And I get to the point where I ask everybody to bow their heads and close their eyes and I go through the prayer with them. And then I ask while everybody still has their heads bowed and eyes closed, I say, would you raise your hand if you prayed to receive Christ? And he raises his hand. Then I realize this gentleman, the other gentleman is looking in the back and suddenly I see tears coming down his face. He begins to, to shake as he's weeping. And then I, I said, well, if, if you prayed to receive Christ, would you do this? We would love to have you talk to an encourager and have them pray for you and give you a Bible. And, and, I, and if, you, if you would be willing to do that, would you stand up and, and go with our volunteer and they'll take you to do that? And I thought to myself, this is where he will be too cool for school and he's not gonna do this. But he hopped up out of his chair like a popcorn kernel off a hot griddle. It's just boom, like that. And he goes off. Now keep in mind, everybody else still has their heads bowed and eyes closed while they're leaving. This, this guy in the back of the room gets up, walks up to me and takes his big bare arms and wraps them around me like this in a big bear hug. And he, t he, he grabs me so tight. It's one of the only, like a couple of times in my life I've had to ask somebody to back off of a hug a little bit so I could breathe. <laughs> and through all these tears, he holds out his hand and he said, five years, five years. He said, when my son left to go to college, he told us he could never believe in God, that any belief he'd ever had before he was just doing to please people. He never planned on having any relationship with God. He started doing things that were completely against how he was raised. And he said, his mother and I didn't know what to do. We would, we would pray for him and we wept over him so often. And we never knew what to do, but just to keep going to God and say, God, you know how to handle this. We don't know how to handle this. It's bigger than us. And he said, I don't know exactly how the dots got connected for him. I don't know if it was the drama. I don't know if it was something you said in here. I just want you to know it was five years in the making. Well, it was a kind of awkward moment for me because I don't know what to say. I mean, I'm excited for him. I mean, I'm crying too. He's crying, I'm crying, everybody's crying. I don't, I don't know what to say, but I have another group coming in right now, so it can't be a long conversation. And just the only thing off the top of my head, I'm like, well, it's early Sunday afternoon. Where do you go from here? And he said, I'm gonna throw a party. the church of Jesus Christ would have such a different influence if we would start planning some parties. Because we've given up on people and the only thing that we do is we make arguments, we try to convince them to change the way that they think and what we need is we need the God of the universe to change the heart. And so what we can do is we can pray 
and we can plan for the party. We can take that person and lift them up to God and say, God, I trust that you're gonna do something here. It's bigger than me. It's, out, it's, it's you know, over my pay grade. I'm gonna bring this to you and say, God, this is gonna have to be a you thing. And by the way, we will give you the credit when it happens. Am I, am I right about that? When, when a person comes home to God, we'll say, God, you, you will get the credit because this wasn't me. It wasn't my sharp argument. It was you softening their heart. In the meantime, I'm getting the party started. I'm getting it going. Would you pray with me for just a second? Father, we trust that you are at work doing things that we cannot see, cannot sense, don't understand, far beyond what is in our ability to process. And we thank you for the fact that you are at, that, at work doing those things. Pray for every person in this room that's hurting with a loved one that's making poor choices. Give their heart strength to endure this season and to have faith that things can change. Heads are still bowed, eyes are still closed. If you're in this room, and you heard that I told that young man about Jesus and you, you're wondering what I told him, this is it right here in a nutshell. I told him that he, like I, has made mistakes, done things wrong, sometimes intentionally, and that those things create a debt that has to be paid. But the wonderful truth is that Jesus dying on the cross paid for everything that he had done wrong in the past, the present, and anything that he'll do wrong in the future. And that's the same for me. I told him that Jesus has already done all the heavy lifting. He, he died the death that we can't die so that we could have a relationship with God. And I said the only thing that remained was for him to say yes, because the thing about it is a relationship is a two-man play. Both people have to be interested in a relationship. When Jesus died on the cross with his arms outstretched, he was letting you know, I'm in. He's waiting, for, he's waiting to find out, are you in? And if you want to say to Jesus today, I'm in, I'm gonna help you do that right now the same way I did that day. I'm gonna say the words to the same prayer I did then. And if you wanna follow along, you can do this. You don't need to say this out loud. You can just follow along silently in your heart to God. Here we go. Dear Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died and came back to life for me. I know I do wrong things and I know I can't get to heaven on my own. Today, I accept your free gift of heaven and forgiveness. Thank you for adopting me into your family. Father, I thank you for everyone that has just prayed that prayer with me and we, we leave them in your hands in Jesus' name, amen. Would you look this way for just a moment? If you just prayed that prayer with me, would you do me a favor? We wanna get you started on your journey with Christ in a, in a, on a good foot. We have some awesome materials we wanna give you. You can pray te uh, text PRAYED to 97000 uh, and head out to guest services or just head straight out to guest services and they'll make sure you get that. Thanks so much for being here with us this week. We'll see you next week. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time newspring.org.